0: Chasing Chapter 3. What does it take to get through winter? I remember one afternoon in high school, I was sitting in a classroom, looking out the windows at the sky. It was late September, and the trees were bare of leaves, and everything was settling into a gray color. Summer was over. In front of me was a thick textbook. It was open to page 11. The return of warm weather was at least eight months, and a few hundred pages away. I felt tired, but, but then I saw it, a snowflake floating gently past my view. At first, I didn't really see it, it could easily have been a piece of ash falling from the roof, but then another flake, and another, and another, until the air was thick with snow all coming down at once. Everyone knows that a first snow almost never sticks, that it will probably stop after a few flurries. But when it first snows, we all forget. Someone in the classroom shouted, look, hey, hey, look, snow. And everyone stood up, everyone cheered, skiing and sledding on our minds. Everyone chattered about the fun to come. No, no one was tired. No one was overwhelmed by winter in that moment. I can't remember what I studied in that class, but I do remember the snow. Adjusting to Alaskan winters was a challenge our first year. The sheer volume of snow overwhelmed us. Snowbanks went taller than seven feet. Ice covered the roads for months at a time. The snow itself was different, too. It was, it was rare that we could make snowmen or snowballs. In that kind of cold, there was less moisture in the snow, not enough to make it stick to itself. And sometimes we would just try to throw snow at each other, which resulted in a cloud of snow right in front of our faces with the ice crystals sparkling like fairy dust. My brother and I would sometimes just roll around with our snow suits on, sometimes also called snow machine suits, since they were designed riding on the back of fast-moving snow machines, also known as snowmobiles, which are kind of winter motorcycles with skis in the front and a track in the back. And essentially, the suits were insulated coveralls that covered your entire body and zipped up the front. When the suits were on, we were ready for any kind of action. Without the constraints of a coat, we could jump, climb, and tumble anywhere and not feel the cold. Of course, By the time we were 10 or 11, the suits had to make way for more adult-looking, down parkas. There was a lot of different kinds of snow throughout the winter. There was powder so fine that you could easily brush it up into the sky, or it might become heavier and maybe even wet enough or sticky enough for snowballs. And then there was ice. And each kind of snow would layer on top of the snow that fell before it, to the point that layers looked like what you might see on an archaeological dig. There was a particularly intense blizzard once where the wind was blowing snow horizontally and it was just too intense to go outside. It blew all night, but died down in the early morning. And when we woke up, there were snow drifts up the side of our house that looked like sparkly white sand dunes. And the top of the snow everywhere has a, was a hard crust of ice. And when the crust broke, below was granular snow kind of like, Large salt crystals. Next to our house was an abandoned house that looked a little bit like a barn. It was probably there before the subdivision was built. The driveway had three foot tall banks on either side, and the blizzard snow drifts had filled that driveway so completely that it looked like a flat field. When my brother and I stepped into the field, we of course dropped down until the snow was around our waists, and joyously we Grabbed a couple of shovels and went to work, and through most of the day we dug a series of trenches, rooms, and even a tunnel under the icy crust. It was the most impressive snow fort ever, or at least we thought so, and the more we dug, the more enchanted we became. I still look forward to shoveling a walk or driveway many years later. There must be something primal about it, as I have no reasonable explanation for why I love the backbreaking work of shoveling snow in the cold but I do. There were many more types of snow. One of the more striking is below zero snow. When walking on snow at ten below, every footstep squeaks loudly. Every other sound seems strange as well. When it gets that cold, there's less of an echo and more of a dryness to what one hears. Of course, when a person is bundled up and rushing to the next warm place, that also can make things sound strange. If someone stays out in the cold too long, the mind gets a little out of balance. It's it's probably fear that causes someone to think strange thoughts, panic, maybe even hallucinate sometimes, but it could also just be too much cold. Crazy thoughts can be a signal that it's time to go inside and get warm quickly. Below zero weather is a strange blessing. When I was a kid, most of January was 10 or 20 degrees below zero, with some days dropping even farther. January is also the darkest month, filled with day after day of very little light. And intuitively, that kind of cold would only make things worse. But it doesn't. And and here's why. Despite the physical discomfort, far more challenging is the psychological discomfort that comes from all that darkness. Alaska had the highest rates of alcoholism, drug abuse, and sugar consumption in the country. I didn't have a name for what I felt, but I was depressed a lot. Now it's called seasonal effect disorder, and everyone is supposed to sit in front of a special lamp every day to feel better. But back then, we didn't have the special lamps, and everyone was desperate to feel good again, to feel alive, despite month after month of gray and black. Thankfully, in below-zero weather, we were brought back to life by the adrenaline of intense and threatening weather. To this day, the feeling of my eyebrows and nose hairs freezing solid brings a smile to my face. Now below zero, uh, wearing of snow suits, parkas and gloves, uh, you know, it had an extra benefit too. The kids around us were more aggressive than what I was used to. My brother, even though he was younger and smaller than me, was physically fearless and ready to fight. If anyone was picked on, he was the first to leap to their defense. If anyone picked on him, look out. I remember him with a cut lip or a bruise on his face. He didn't always win, but he was always ready for more, and usually smiling as he got ready to hit a bully. More than anything else, he wanted to be a hero. And yet, he already was. In contrast my reaction to threats was to be frightened. Instead of fighting back, which is in the prison yard culture I suddenly found myself in, the only appropriate response, I would avoid, run, or talk my way out of a fight. And sometimes those techniques work, but sometimes not. I got hit a lot, but At least I was protected by a thick layer of mittens, sweaters, and down jackets. I wanted to be more like my brother, better at facing enemies, taking the hit, and moving forward with a minimum of regret. I still work on it. I tried to fit in with the new school, the new culture, the new everything. There were people that obviously did fit in. They they naturally belonged. My brother did with his courage, his toughness, and his inner wildness. Neighbor kids fit in with their Northwoods-style clothing and tough talk about hunting bear, using chainsaws, and smoking. I didn't fit easily, but I kept trying. Something I wasn't aware of, Made things even more difficult. Most people's dialects, apparently, are determined by the kids they socialize with when they are five years old. My dialect is Philadelphian. My younger siblings speak Alaskan. The Alaskan dialect, as you would expect, is a mix of several other dialects due to all the migration from outside, It sounds like the Minnesota and Idaho dialects as well as California, Texas, and Oklahoma all mixed together. Decades later, I discovered that one of my closest friends growing up actually moved with his family from Philadelphia around the same time we did. I wonder how much of our connection was based subconsciously anyway on the way we talked. As an adult... I keep listening to dialects from all over the world and learning how to alter how I speak. It's a useless skill to have now, but I, I wonder if it might have come in handy then to be able to sound like an Alaskan. One day, I found that snow pressed into a wall outside of school would stay there. The wall was made of concrete that was embedded with stones, a, construction style popular at the time, it was possible to write words or draw pictures with snow, like graffiti, and it would then eventually melt off. How interesting. Graffiti that would make me look cool and tough, but allow me still to be a good boy because it wouldn't destroy the wall with paint. Hmm. What should I write? All the graffiti I had seen before seemed to be about love. Like, I love you, Mary, that that sort of thing. So I wrote with Snow in big letters, I love you. Cool. The only problem was, as an eight-year-old, I had been instructed to always sign my work. So I signed my name. The work was finished, and I walked away and towards a group of kids nearby. The laughter was... Deafening. I love you too, Gunner. Who loves Gunner? Do you have a girlfriend? You know, no coolness or toughness was given to me. No amount of scraping the snow either would take down the name, and weeks of Arctic cold ensured that the graffiti would not come down for some time. I even tried to put a big period between the phrase And my signature, it didn't work. The laughter didn't stop for a while. When I try to be something other than what I am, the results are disappointing. Why then do I keep trying? There were only three television channels when we moved to Alaska. And of course, there was no streaming or recorded movies. So today's approach to the doldrum of winter wasn't available to us then. In those first few winters, there wasn't much television other than the news and maybe a little Saturday morning cartoons. Our parents hated seeing us watch television on the weekend, so we were often shooed away. An alternative was to read books. Now, my parents were both Serious readers, and my father's books overspilled whatever bookshelves we had at the time, it was important to him that we became serious readers like him. We did, eventually. My brother was the first to really read, consuming books at an incredible clip. From an early age, he had a penchant for adventure stories. My sister started to read next, but at seven, my literary focus was the Sunday comics section. I'm not sure why I resisted reading books, but I did. Perhaps it seemed to be too much work. All the pages filled with text and without illustrations. It was too daunting. I believe my parents were starting to get nervous, despite language about how everyone learns at their own pace. And then I I walked into a library at school I picked up a book that I remembered a teacher reading aloud to class months before. A book by Beverly Cleary called Henry Huggins. Now, how hard could this be? I opened it. Sitting on the floor in the library, I started to read. Time passed, and when I looked up from the page, it was closing time. Somehow, I had read several chapters. No undue effort was required. I checked out the book and put it in my bag to take home. It reminds me of a classic television commercial in the 1970s for life cereal. A couple of kids were avoiding eating their cereal, distrustful of how it might taste since it was supposed to be good for them. They shoved a bowl of cereal back and forth, and then over to their kid brother, Mikey, to see if he would eat it. And one of the kids says, he won't eat it, he hates everything. Mikey then eagerly eats the cereal, prompting the kids to say, he likes it. Hey, Mikey. Now, from that point on, I became Mikey with books. I hungrily wolfed them down. When there was enough sunlight, I even read books as I walked home. Most of what I read at first were written for kids in the 1940s and 1950s, focused on the adventures of the Hardy Boys, Encyclopedia Brown, and others like them. Then I started migrating to science fiction. There was a lot of it designed for younger people, some even written by adult authors like Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury, not to mention Jules Verne and HG Wells. There is an extreme quality to science fiction that appealed to me of facing unfathomable and strange worlds. I didn't realize it, but my life already read like a typical pulp science fiction story. Thousands of miles away from what I knew before, I stepped out into a place truly unknown. One night after dinner, I was in a bedroom reading The Rolling Stones by Robert Heinlein about a family traveling through space. I was so submerged into the story that the dark, cold night outside the window had become the reaches of space. The spaceship was hit by something and I was thrown off the bed. The entire room was shaking, making it difficult to get up. My, my mind split into two thoughts at once. One, this is a really exciting and terrifying adventure. And two, this was an earthquake and I had to get under the dining room table where the rest of the family was. Now earthquakes are common in Alaska, but this one was bigger than what I had experienced so far. Most of the time an earthquake could be difficult for anyone to notice unless they noticed a hanging plant swinging, but occasionally, like this time, there is enough shaking for everyone to wonder, is this the big one? Fortunately, it wasn't. Despite what some Alaskans, myself included, might tell you, it wasn't below zero all the time. There were good times to be had, and there are many other ways to mitigate the dark and negative feelings that come from months of actual darkness. So let's start with growing beards. Now, in the 1970s, that was a big deal for anyone who wasn't alone in the wilderness, playing with a rock band or living in a commune. Despite all the impressions most of us have of the 1970s as a time of hippies wearing mustaches and sideburns, men's fashions were still mostly conservative. Those cultural rules were loosened a bit during the winter months as everyone got ready for fur rendezvous. An official at one point even declared that any non-bearded fellows would be levied a fine. My father never had to worry about that, as he had a beard, but I also doubt if anyone else really had to worry about it much either. And historically, fur rendezvous was a gathering of fur trappers for trade and perhaps a bit of drinking. There weren't many fur trappers around when I was a kid, but Plenty of accountants, lawyers, and salespeople look like they might be ready to sell you a pelt or two. The name of the festival was abbreviated to Fur Rondi, mostly, I believe, to help everyone avoid making French language spelling errors. Started in 1935, when there were only 3,000 or so people in Anchorage, but quite a few actual fur traders. It always had a goofy feel to it. And there was a strong emphasis on fun. In addition to the Beard Contest and the World Ice Bowling Championships, a highlight was always the outhouse races, where outhouses on skis would be pushed down a hill with someone inside. It was always well covered by the local newspapers. After months of darkness, Rondi was a sign that light might actually come back. The worst of winter was over, and there was only two and a half months before the rest of winter was over. The true centerpiece of Rondi was the dogs. Harnessed into teams of 16 in front of sleds along with scores of other teams, the world championship dog sled race ran for three days over 75 miles of snow covered roads and parks, including the main streets downtown. Standing on the runners and often running behind the sled to lighten the load, Men and women from all over the world competed with their teams of huskies. There was a lot of joyous barking. And alongside the road, we cheered them on and clapped our mittens together, the traditional muffled applause of winter carnivals. Augmenting the muffled claps, of course, were vocal cheers and the occasional cowbell or air horn. The dog sled races were one of those rare things It made everyone feel like they were at the center of the world, instead of the periphery. The winners of the races were often mentioned in the media outside. The World Championships were not anywhere else, but here. And a couple of years later, in 1973, another annual event was added after Ferrandi. But this one was one we couldn't see in person, the Iditarod almost a thousand miles from Anchorage to Nome. The course takes two weeks for most competitors to complete. Through blizzards, sub-zero temperatures, and gale force winds, it is one of the most extreme races imagined. The teams were made up of 14 dogs, and there was a requirement that at least five of those dogs still needed to be towing the sled at the finish line. Some didn't meet that requirement. The Iditarod Trail was surveyed in 1908 and cleared and marked in 1911. The history goes back even further as it followed many original Athabascan trails and was named after an Athabascan village called Iditarod. In 1925, part of the trail was used to quickly get serum to the villagers of Nome to head off a diphtheria outbreak. There are no roads to Nome. The only way to get there is by plane, boat, or dog sled. A growing challenge for the race became more apparent every year. Snow, there was less of it, especially in Anchorage, where they officially started the race. So every year, there was less snow as the temperatures gradually increased. In a couple of years, the Iditarod had a ceremonial start in Anchorage and then they went out of town to start the actual race. We followed the Iditarod the same way everyone else did, through breathless reports from checkpoints in the newspaper and on local TV news. I imagined the tired dogs in harness and the musher in back, with an exhausted dog or two in the sled, making their way through the weather, exhausted, cold, anxious, as they searched through the darkness for the next checkpoint. Or the next turn in the trail. In March, there was still a lot of winter to get through. Fortunately, there was skiing. Now, despite all the mountains around Anchorage, most skiing was cross-country, also known as Nordic. Development of downhill runs had started near town, but it wasn't anywhere near as sophisticated then as Colorado or other downhill meccas. Cross-country doesn't require driving up into the mountains or buying expensive equipment and ski lift tickets. It was something I could do anywhere just by going out the front door. And the whole family took to skiing most weekends, and we all learned how to do it together. My brother and I soon uh, began to race each other and look for higher, more challenging hills. We carried tea or juice in an old wineskin over our shoulders, which sounds impossibly like something Ernest Hemingway would write about, but that no ordinary person actually does. But we did it. It was so refreshing to squirt juice into our mouths whenever we rested, but it would quite often freeze solid if we didn't drink it early enough in the trip. There was a particular tree on a course that had it in for my father, After a winding and fast hill, the trail would turn left, but he went straight, smashing right into the tree. Fortunately, he was able to get back up and keep skiing. Then the next time, he hit it again. He often told the story of the tree to everyone's delight. Only my father could turn pain, injury, and embarrassment into a good story. So wooden cross-country skis, unlike the synthetic ones used today, had to be treated on the bottom with pine tar every season and then rubbed with different grade waxes depending on the snow conditions. Pine tarring would usually take place at a neighbor's garage where everybody would bring their skis, put them on sawhorses, then paint the pine tar on the wood before someone else would come along with a propane torch and melt, kind of burn the tar into the wood. It was probably toxic, but it was a heavenly smell to me that presaged a winter of gliding fast through the snow. The waxes we used all had different color, colors and generally lined up with the temperatures. A hard light green wax was for when it was below zero, while a soft purple wax was used for temperatures above freezing. There was also a very sticky wax that came in tubes called clister, which was for ice and warmer temperatures. We all hated clister The waxes then became a language for what kind of snow and weather was outside. People would say, oh, it's light blue snow or it's clister slop. Skiing is a lot like cycling. Of course, you can ski or bike for fun, taking a lovely trail somewhere or competing in a race, but it's also possible and positively joyous to ski or bicycle to get somewhere. One of the big features of Alaska for me was the ability to commute to school on skis, although my book bag could sometimes bang at me as it swung back and forth. Now when skiing through a park or forest, I would often see wild animals up close. Birds, squirrels, fox, even moose, they didn't seem to mind an awkward human sliding by. When walking on the same path in the summer though, those animals would scatter but not, not in the snow. Someone explained it to me that animals could recognize the rhythm of human bipedal footfalls. So if they heard one, two, they knew it was human. So skis didn't sound human to them. The awkward phase of learning to ski was shorter than learning to bicycle. I only fell a few times and was well cushioned by the snow instead of concrete. The skis were less something I got onto and more like something I got into. They quickly became an extension of my body that conferred speed and grace on my gangly and awkward body. And whenever I took off my skis, I would sometimes not let my feet get too close to steps because I forgot the skis were no longer attached. I had ghost skis attached to my shoes in a couple of years, I joined the ski team. Now outside, most schools don't have a Nordic ski team, but in Alaska, skiing was, wasn't just some sort of special startup game like Ultimate Frisbee or a vacation pursuit like scuba diving. It was a serious Olympic sport, more popular than football. Practice happened on the track field, but also in the surrounding parks. The parks in Anchorage were mostly lightly touched forests, crisscrossed with ski tracks all winter. It wasn't difficult to ski for five miles before crossing a road or seeing the backyard of a house. In many cases, the main trails were lit with streetlights. One of my favorite trails backed up to the campus of Alaska Pacific University, a small private college. After acres of forest, there was a sudden drop-off, almost a cliff, to a clear valley of snow below. At one end, there was a large wooden ski jump like those used at the Olympics. I never tried the jump, nor did I ever see anyone else try. It was terrifying, made with splintered wooden planks at an almost vertical incline, then jutting out over the hill to the valley below. Eventually, I was ready for my first race. It was a cold day with thick snowfall and almost no visibility. The snow on the ground was thick and fast. It was a blue wax day. I lined up with a bunch of nine-year-old racers at the starting line. Before the starter pistols fired, we leaned into our poles intensely and moved our skis forward and back to calm nerves and stay warm. Ahead of us, about 200 feet or so, the wide field suddenly narrowed to a single track. Somehow, in that distance, a pack of 20 had to get themselves into single file all at top speed, all competing to be first. The pistol fired. None of us managed to be graceful. Terrified of getting caught in the forest of flailing ski poles all around me, I dug in and pushed hard. And right from the start, skiers were falling, falling into each other, tripping over poles, blocking anyone else from moving forward. Some were crying, some were yelling, and some were slowly getting back up on their feet just to fall back down again parents and friends yelling from the sidelines. In the snow, there was no way to see them, nor could I see the mayhem behind me. Somehow, I had pushed myself to the front of the scrum, still panicked about what was behind me. It hadn't even occurred to me that I might be in front. I pushed harder, breathed deeply, and dug my poles as fiercely into the snow as I could. At any minute, I knew they would (laughs) That I would be overtaken and probably fall. Instead, I got to the single track and kept skiing. The snow started to fall harder and visibility evaporated. The rim of my stocking cap and my eyelashes were caked with snowflakes. This wasn't the Iditarod, but I understood a little how it must feel to be racing hard with ice attached to my face. I didn't care. I barely noticed. I just wanted to stay ahead of all the other skiers. The course was hilly and winded around for five kilometers. I still couldn't hear anyone behind me, and I couldn't see anything in front of me. In a way, it felt like I was completely alone in the storm. My skis glided perfectly. I flew through the course as if I was being pushed somehow. Towards the end, there were several turnoffs, the snow had obliterated all the signs, so I had no idea which fork in the road to take. And in a moment, I decided to go left. It looked right to me, or as right as something could be. But it wasn't right. I started to hear something. My parents, along with everyone else, were shouting, You're going the wrong way! And then up ahead, I started to see the other skiers racing straight towards me. Somehow, that turn was taking me back to the starting line. In a hurry, I I turned back around and, and, and pushed with everything I had to the finish line, all the skiers still behind me. I could taste blood from all the heavy breathing, but I crossed in first place. My father proudly told the story of me winning the race by going the wrong way many times. In each telling, My lead became longer, and the obstacles greater. Even without additional embellishments, it was a story that showed me what unlikely things could happen. As an adult, I discovered baseball and the Chicago Cubs, an underdog team that occasionally wins a game or two, even when they start by going the wrong way. Miracles may be more valuable than consistent championships. It wasn't the last race I would ski, but it was the last one I would win. I don't mind at all. After a day of skiing, there was a relaxed and pleasant mood that descended on everyone. Our snow-based, exercise-induced, generous dosing of dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and oxytocin overwhelmed any darkness. I remember sitting around the living room still wearing my ski pants, playing cards, laughing, and drinking cocoa. I remember everyone feeling good, and everyone full of warmth, even as the snow crystals trapped in the cuffs of their pants slowly melted. On one night like that, the power went out. Power outages were frequent, so no one was very worried about it. Candles were lit, and we continued playing and talking. And outside the house, with no streetlights on, it was still almost as bright as daylight. Not unlike a night baseball game. The moon was full, while every surface was covered in icy snow, every yard, car, road and driveway, frozen blue light burned at our feet and up at us all. This is what it's like to live on the moon.